If you're going to be a Christian working in politics, you're going to have to maintain your moral character, which means you're going to have to work harder than anyone else because you can't do moral shortcuts. And I believe that the Christian, as it relates to politics, should not at all be nice. What we should do is undertake God's commanded characteristic of kindness. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of uh, the Two Things You Shouldn't Talk About podcast. I'm here this week with Jim Paff from uh, Against Nice podcast. So welcome, Jim, and it's great to talk to you. Well, thank you. I'm here in Colorado. Uh, good to connect with Northern Ireland. Absolutely. Lots of wonderful things to discuss, I think. <laughs> yeah, hopefully you can come visit sometime and uh, I'll show you around the place and get uh, get you acquainted with Belfast. Uh, I'll uh, and I will be very judicious in when I am wearing orange. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> depends where you are. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, we're we're so we're kind of jumping across the pond together. It looks like yeah, transatlantic. And I mean, I guess a lot of my podcasts tend to be that way because um, there are obviously opinionated people from the UK. But I guess you tend to find that people maybe are more strong in their convictions a lot of time, or a lot more open and public with their with their beliefs and views in, in the U.S. kind of culture. So I think in the U.K. we're maybe yeah. a little more, that's, I guess, where the where the podcast came from and the website. It's from kind of encouraging people to be open with talking about their religious and political beliefs and just putting it out right. there and, and for the sake of having a healthy discussion and, and just opening up this dialogue. Yeah. I, it, by the way, in the U.K. as well, you guys are um, you, there's still there's even more reticence as I think you're referring to here to talking about religion and politics. I think so. Than you would see in the United States. Yeah, well, the the evangelical side of things in the U.S. is kind of is very unashamedly, I guess, pro Donald Trump, pro Republican Party, and very pro life. It's all very clear where they stand. And you know, it's interesting maybe to hear from your perspective on this because I think in the U.K. Like I said, people just don't want to put it out there because you know, you, I guess it's a fear of maybe driving people away that aren't quite on the same page as you. Maybe if you go out and, and you, you can alienate some people from being overly political with your faith. And I guess I can see where where the issue could be there. But um, I guess from your perspective, do you see in the U.S. that people are more out there and just open with oh, what they believe? There's no doubt. I think historically it's kind of interesting because I would say we were in that in this regard – a lot more like the UK until about the mid part of the 20th century. Jerry Falwell started the um, uh, uh, moral majority. And, um, you know, I, I was born in 65. And uh, I got, I became a teenager, obviously, in the late 70s, uh, early 80s. I started mm -hmm. being very concerned about what's going on. I was very enamored of Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. And uh, both in 76, actually, right. it's kind of funny. I was 11 years old in 1976 when he lost the nomination to Gerald Ford that year. And I was in tears. Right. I still remember <laughs> it. I don't know how fully I really understood uh, everything there, but yeah. I did have a great admiration and respect of Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of sparked my interest in politics. And I'm sharing this because at the same time that that's happening to me, Jerry Falwell's effort, which began roughly in 1978, I think he started envisioning it as far back as the 76 uh, presidential mm -hmm. elections. Um, he he felt very strongly <clears throat> that um, 
that American Christians needed to be much more engaged in what was going on in politics. We had mm-hmm. the Roe v. Wade decision mm-hmm. in 1973, which, which forced legalized abortion in the United States. We actually had legal abortion prior to that, yeah, but on a state-by-state state state yeah, basis. Exactly. <clears throat> in fact, I live here in Colorado. We were the first state to legalize abortion, mm-hmm. and we legalized it all the way up to term. Right right out the gate. Yeah. And we've been that way ever since. That was 1960 that that happened. Okay. We actually have uh, something on the ballot here this year, which would restrict abortion to 22 weeks, uh, abortion, yeah. excuse me, from 22 weeks and after. Mm-hmm. So this might be the very first real restriction on abortion we've had since this yeah, whole since, debate yeah. started. Yeah, so, it's, it's definitely, I mean, to me, it's an increasing pattern, I guess, in, in, in the U.S., where it seems like this whole idea of states' rights is almost like people think of it as almost primitive, or maybe it's a, a kind of mean-spirited idea, where if you say about you know about leaving something to the states, people assume it means that you aren't willing to have like a you don't have a a full support of you know these issues that they talk about, you know, like abortion and and even when talks when you talk about things like gay marriage and things like that, you know, if you say leave it to the states, people think, oh, you're just being mean because you don't want to get fully behind the the agenda you know what i mean so it's to me it makes much more sense to leave it to the states because there's such a broad um range of um just viewpoints and cultures even within the u.s for 50 states and some of them are just it could be different countries they're that different you know some are maybe more similar to to a european country in terms of their social uh, views and then some are are very conservative so i just think that these sort of things and even you saw it with obamacare those sort of things don't really work on a federal level because of the depth and, and breadth of, of different viewpoints. And it's just an increasing pattern. Yeah. I think that this idea of leaving things at the States is, is kind of being neglected a little bit. Yeah. I think it's a combination of the way this whole federal versus state concept, which really is, is mm-hmm. an American ideal. Um, in, in, not entirely, but in many ways, yeah. um, geographically we're so large as a country well first of all the concept started because of an understanding that we you know we had these various Mm -hmm. uh states that formed out of the the various compacts that were made Mm -hmm. with uh our home country england obviously and they 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 each developed their own character yeah and when the constitution was written there was felt and i think rightly so a need to say, let each of these states, since we're going to join in a union, let each of these states maintain their own character. And it it kind of becomes a factory of ideas. And when you allow states to to determine how they're going to do things, and we did it in a less antagonistic way. So, for example, the hatred between England and Scotland, which goes back centuries um and and has such a mix of political components to it yeah. that we never experienced in this country um it it actually works well and even to this day you, you think about it it's it's a lot more toned down mm-hmm. you still have these long histories that people in great britain feel yeah, you know uh, yeah. nationally so to speak but but yet it's kind of toned down quite a bit there's more unanimity Mm-hmm. in great britain than there ever i mean just northern ireland where you are just yeah. look at the, well, the changes that have happened there the devolution of powers back to the individual i guess it's a it's a semi-federal mm-hmm. system where it's yeah. um i mean it, it you couldn't really compare it to uh the american system i think because i guess there's no concept of 
any unenumerated things remain with the states, that kind of stuff. It's more like the crown is the one that has the ultimate sovereignty really over all of them. But um, I guess this idea of like devolution was as our term really for giving these things back to back to the individual countries and nations within the UK. Um, we've seen things like policing in Northern Ireland being devolved, and that's a huge step forward because then. You know, we had the Royal yeah. Ulster Constabulary and whenever we got the police service of Northern Ireland, then I guess people from both sides were able to feel this ownership of, you know, this policing. It's not just the British state against, you know, Irish people or anything like that. It's a it's a community right. police service that we can own. And it's the same with even in the, the coronavirus restrictions, each individual part of the UK is, is different in that regard because in, in Wales, I think, they've completely shut down... Um, the big kind of supermarkets from being able to retail non-essential items in order to force people wow. like for example say um our version of walmart really tesco's they would have um greetings cards or books things like that in the store they have to put these kind of barriers over them to force people to kind of go to independent bookshops <laughs> to buy to buy these things because to you know in order to get the footfall on the high street so it's that that is isn't something that's been implemented all over the uk but we've seen these differences in in restrictions and Sometimes it can get messy, but um, I guess that's the same as as in America when we've seen with the the whole coronavirus response. Maybe the president hasn't been quite as open about saying, you know, we're not your overlords. Each state has their role to play and their own restrictions that they're right. going to have to enforce. But that confuses things because then people look to the head of the president and say, you need to be doing more. But you know, maybe you needed to articulate better that it's not my place to do more. Each state has their own part to play. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think some people have been critical of Trump having a light hand, but to be candid, he's act, he's acted in a truly constitutional manner Yes, I think in so. that, that regard. And uh, I think it's been actually quite helpful. You know, he's getting a lot of criticism from uh, his opponent, yeah. Joe Biden and Democrats, but at the same time, we're starting to see politically that I think right, right at the beginning, back in March, Mm -hmm. And uh, late February, March, when we started to see that, yeah, this is going to be a little bit of a problem. Um, I think it's very fair to say that every state, whether it had a Democrat or mm -hmm. Republican governor, was just trying to be cautious. Yes. We felt we saw what was happening in Italy and how outrageous their situation had gotten because their hospitals were truly overwhelmed and mm -hmm. people were actually dying because they couldn't get care. Absolutely. And we yeah. wanted to avoid that. Totally appropriate. At some point, though, and this is the way American politics has devolved, in my opinion, mm -hmm. uh, Democrat governors in particular started saying, hey, look, this economy is going nuts. That's going to totally hurt Donald Trump in an election <laughs> year. Let's keep him closed. I literally believe that's part of the yep. motivation. We have a Democrat governor here in Colorado with whom I actually have a, a good relationship, although he's a Democrat. I'm a Republican. Mm -hmm. Um, Jared Polis, he's the first, uh, homosexual governor mm -hmm. in, in this country, at least that's out as yep. a homosexual. And he, um, he's been highly restrictive too. I've been quite frustrated, but I, I'm convinced that he and other Democrats are thinking, listen, this is hurting Trump because mm -hmm. you hear it in the rhetoric, you hear Democrats, uh, and Joe Biden and some of these talking about, listen, we're going to, we're going to get rid of this coronavirus thing. If you elect us, yeah, <laughs> basically well, what they're saying is we're going to lock you down until absolutely. we can win and have it our way. This is, this is the thing that confused me most about the debates and they were, and uh, I think there were some uh, kind of ads put out by the Biden side that were saying, 
Um, this is Donald Trump's economy. This crash is all of Donald Trump. And it really, it doesn't make sense to me because I think if Donald Trump had his way, there probably wouldn't have been very many lockdowns anywhere at all. So this right. this whole thing, I don't really know who they're trying to pull the wool over their eyes, you know, because it doesn't really make sense. How could how can Donald Trump be blamed for lockdowns and coronavirus restrictions? Maybe their right. point is that it's more, uh, it's been allowed to go on for too long. And I've heard people like... Uh, Brett Weinstein kind of advocating. He said we should have, from the very start, locked everything totally down, almost like New Zealand style, where everything mm-hmm. was restricted nationally for a couple of weeks or even a month, and then from there on, you know, until it was eliminated, completely gone. But I don't know if there's ever that doesn't necessarily get rid of any risk of it coming back in, and it's just a, I mean, it, right. it'll be a huge step for a country the size of the size of the U.S. to completely lock down the whole country. So. There's, there's obviously a middle ground where people want to be, but in order to say that you know Donald Trump was really the one that was responsible for this economy going downhill is is kind of a huge fallacy. Plus, we've also then, um, you know, of course, the, the coronavirus um, help package that Congress are trying to pass as well. Nancy Pelosi's out blaming the Republicans. The Republicans are out blaming the Democrats for not compromising. But um, really, I think that in particular, even more so than the idea of of um, solving the whole coronavirus thing like Joe Biden claims he can do. But I think that the health package kind of is the main way that the Democrats have just been completely unwilling to do anything that would give Donald Trump a bit of a boost or a bit of credit for it. Because it would, no matter what, he has to sign it at the end of the day, even if they author it. So that was the main way that I saw this kind of spiteful approach, maybe where they, they're holding back on giving help to people just, you know, in order to to stay away from giving Trump any kind of any kind of uh, reason to celebrate, you know? Yeah. Listen, this has been, and, and I think it's, it's happened to a certain degree in England and UK and parts of Europe, but it's really bad here in the United States where it's, it's the us and them approach. Yes. Of course we are a, a two party system. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think we, it, we tend to get it worse when you get to this place where we're at, where uh, each party is like all out war uh, with one another and, and and all the marbles are on the line. You know, you get into parliamentary mm-hmm. systems where you have multi-party efforts. Yep. You still are restrained, even though it gets to that place, you're still restrained from it somewhat because you mm-hmm. have to build these coalitions yep. with the with the minor parties. We see that effect in the United States, by the way. I worked in in, in Washington, DC as a chief of staff for mm-hmm. a couple of different congressmen. And my guys were these more libertarian minded, um, mm-hmm. um, limited government types that didn't go along. And I, I, I did it as a Republican that didn't go along with the Republican establishment. Mm-hmm. And so they had to try to build from time to time coalitions right. with us. It doesn't work in quite the same way, but it's similar. Yeah. But nonetheless, the two party system has put everybody at odds. And my concern is that we're moving towards in this country towards a the constitutionalist party even though i don't think they're very constitutional sometimes the republicans and the anti-constitutionalist party mm-hmm. the democrats there was there was actually a an article written uh in um uh, not the atlantic but um uh, one of the other yep. more left-leaning publications mm-hmm. where they were literally they've made the argument during this campaign season that we need to replace our constitution or get rid of it entirely and work apart from that that's that's where we've gone and that and so all the marbles (laughs) are there thrown up in the air really in this season yeah 
That's, yeah, it's it's been crazy, but um, I mean, you that's, mentioned that's been our real challenge. You mentioned this kind of multi-party system, and uh, yeah, this it's it's an approach that we have taken in Northern Ireland in order to, like you said, build these kind of coalitions. But the issue with our system is it's almost. Um, I mean, you may laugh at this. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it's forcing the two opposing parties who are completely opposed to everything. They are forced to share power um, in order to, to work yeah. together for both sides of the community. And some people might think that's not a bad idea because they have to find the compromise somewhere. But you get this unbelievable gridlock and even worse than the US system where, I mean, what what tends to happen here is because it's a compulsory, like a forced coalition. Then if one doesn't get, yeah. one side doesn't get their way, then they resign from the executive and then the whole thing falls apart for another year or so until they try to figure out how to put it all back together so this uh, yeah. we have a, um we've we've seen so many um sort of horrible situations where things can't get done and um you know if someone's to blame they'll just resign and then nothing you know the whole the whole legislative part of that all falls apart as well because they can't run without the executive side so um I don't know if, if multi-party systems are, are really what you want to strive for. I understand some kind of represent more representative system maybe where I know New Zealand have, I think they do like a percentage where people will kind of, they'll vote on who they want to be in power. And then there's a list of, of candidates and, and you, the, the list of people are assigned based on the percentage of the popular vote. And there's 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 merit to those kind of systems, but it, uh, people sort of underestimate, I think, the the sheer gridlock that results from from no strong yeah and and of course the the u.s system isn't designed to have necessarily strong leadership from any of the three branches at all uh, obviously the courts won't but they're not designed to have a strong presidency or a strong legislature it's designed to be you know the checks and balances and and things can't move forward mm-hmm. unless there is some kind of a compromise and, and and working together but it's it you know it takes it to another level when you end up with um you know these minorities that are actually in power you know you might have say there was more support for the greens and libertarians and under this kind of system you know maybe they have 10 15 percent each in, in congress and then you know the republicans are running the place with 30 percent and the dems are picking up the rest you know you get that kind of system where it's you know, nobody can can make these deals because and even with the increased polarization of society you know you wonder well would they ever be able to make deals especially in america so right well and election rules are set state by state here mm-hmm. And it has worked out that those rules favor a two-party system. It is very hard for um, outlying parties. In this case, the two strongest in recent years have been the Greens, Green Party, and the um, and the Libertarian Party. Mm-hmm. Libertarian Party being more successful. Yeah, but they they can't get a proper placement on the ballot to make a difference. We've set it up that way, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I have some concerns with that. Um, but we've also had a bit of stability. But when you look at like what happened in Israel recently in the in these Knesset votes, right. and what uh, Netanyahu had to go through this last time just to gain power, uh, you can see where those systems can really break down. Mm-hmm. But in both cases, it's freedom. I mean, we've got people that can vote. They can align with people they agree with, and, and they can relatively have an opportunity – to voice their opinion. I mean, you just look at at um, the parties in Great Britain. I mean, it really is, you know, labor and conservatives, but but the these other parties mm-hmm. beneath 
you, every government that is put together and every opposition government that's put together, they must listen to their factions. Yeah. And uh, I think it's easier in a two-party system to shut those factions down. Well, the whole uh, I saw one of my bosses get kicked off of all of his committees in Congress oh, right, okay. because he wouldn't go with the party line. You know, yeah. that's that's less easy to do in a parliamentary system. Yeah, I mean, well, there's there's the cart and the stick as well in the parliamentary system as well where. And we saw this with all, it's similar, we're seeing, we're seeing this in almost every sort of Western political system where uh, in recent years there's been a kind of reckoning where the wheels have come off in different ways and people have had to sort of evaluate how things are done. So in the UK, Brexit was that sort of spanner in the works and that exposed a lot of constitutional kind of loopholes and things that weren't, you know, that were became very obvious and rose to the surface. So, for example, Theresa May had, I guess she had she had a government that was able to to get into power after their second election by you know making this coalition with the northern irish unionist party the dup mm-hmm. and of course she had to listen to, to them and try and keep them on board to try and push some kind of legislation through but the biggest opposition was within her own party there was this block of maybe 20 to 25 people who were just totally holding out against any kind of a, a brexit deal and sort of just you know despite what their manifesto pledged in order to get brexit done that was what the the manifesto said and that is quite vague but um the issue there was really it got to the stage where they were we were all waiting for an election to happen because nothing could get done so the conservatives got their new leader and then they the conservatives were ready for an election because they felt that was it was possible to win it despite the the brexit party looming in the background labor didn't Mm -hmm. want to do that because they knew they would get um kicked you know really they would just get destroyed in the elections they knew that was coming so they didn't want to do that and then sort of this game sort of came it was played where you know boris johnson was saying right well they're the they're the wimps they don't want an election we're ready for it and then of course everyone instantly was oh no no we're for an election let's have it so but you got to see the the what i'm trying to say then is that this faction of people that were holding out they the threat to them was that they obviously weren't selected for to run in the next election so they lost their seats lost their jobs it's happened, you know, you can very easily hold that threat of, you know, well, you can sort of ruin things this time, but next time, you know, there's not a chance you're you're going to be put forward. So there is some kind of a, there's a, and there's a much stronger whip system where your party discipline here is extremely strong compared to even the US system. Obviously, yeah, mm-hmm. there's the same thing where there's threats, you'll know yourself being Congress, but our whip system, I believe, is considerably stronger than, than the American system. But, um the parliamentary system is it's sort of i what people might say is its downfall is it the fact that the the legislature is the executive really it's made up from the people in yeah. the legislature so really if there's no power if there's no majority in this legislative body absolutely nothing can get done whatsoever you know because there's no distinction and by the way it, it i think it also for the person for the people who don't understand how parliamentary systems work it it makes you makes you realize what a force of nature Winston Churchill was because he was literally going against his own party. Yep. Uh-huh. And the whip system was a stronger stronger then as it is now, and uh, and yet he was calling him out, and he should have been done. And it, and just just because of his lineage and and uh, his uh, past political career yep. having been part of the government, it was not enough. He could mm-hmm. still have gotten totally chucked. Yep. You know, that kind of courage, I think, sometimes is not well understood in the United yeah, States. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and Boris Johnson yeah. at the minute, 
Uh, I guess people could chalk it down to charisma, but um, he is sort of taking a a party. The Conservative Party was ruined. It looked like it may never get elected again if they didn't make a a move. But somehow, through his charisma, he's managed to bring people together from the kind of Remain and Brexit sides and kind of start... Mm -hmm. For some reason, they've kind of been able to rally behind the personality. And that's something that very quickly rises to the top in the UK system where the personalities will will quickly, you know, people who are able to lead will become very apparent, whereas, I don't know, maybe the presidential system should be like that, but when people like Joe Biden are able to rise to the top, then you wonder, you know, what what's yeah. the kind of, how do, how do people prove themselves in order to be worthy of the nomination? And I don't know, when it gets to the stage where you can put forward someone who's just not Donald Trump, then just based on that, then, you know, you wonder, what is that any qualification at all to, or any standard to hold someone to? You know? you know, and I, I think uh, we'll maybe get it, get into this, uh, but um, I, it, it's actually interesting because Trump is a bit Churchillian in his rise uh, through a totally different system. I mean, it's 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 a different type of rise, but it's this anomaly, this force of nature that comes in there. I'm curious though, what do you, what would you say, people in Great Britain and in Europe in general? What do they really think about Donald Trump, in your opinion? I I know very few people who would be willing, I mean, percentage-wise, willing to stand by Donald Trump and say that they support him. Um, I found this at our wedding. My wife's from Florida, so um, we there was obviously a lot of mixing of people from my side of things and Heather's side. And, you know, people had these conversations, you know, everyone would come up and say to the people in her family or Americans that were there, you know, what do you think of Donald Trump? What do you really think of him? Like, isn't it just crazy what's going on? And then, you know, people might, they might not like their replies. They get maybe some, some of the responses were, well, maybe I, I like Donald Trump. Have you got a problem? With that? So I don't know. I didn't see, I didn't hear those, those uh, conversations, but really that's, I, that's the sort of thing that would go on. If anyone's talking to American, the first thing that will come out is, what do you think of Donald Trump? How did he get in? Isn't it crazy what he's doing? Isn't he nuts? But, you know, they don't realize that there is such this level of support in America that they maybe don't comprehend that there's a lot of people that do support him and maybe think, you know, he is a bit a bit nuts at times. He's a bit crazy in his own way, but we like his policies. We like the way he's able to, um, to get things done. So it's something that people here definitely, they... I think the perception is that the people who support Trump are like the kind of uneducated Southern kind of rednecky type people who haven't a clue what they're <laughs> what they're talking about, but they don't understand the depth of of actually, I guess, educated yeah. minds and thought that goes into supporting Donald Trump. You know, so it's it's an yeah. interesting you know it's an interesting situation where really everyone just is is looking in and thinking you know how did that even happen? What a, what do Christians in Great Britain and Europe? think about donald trump i think this is again one of the reasons why i started this podcast series is that i think that the christian perspective is almost entirely against um the president um i started the the podcast really to i guess it was to to highlight all sides of the argument but really i felt like the the conservative side maybe was was very much underrepresented in, in common thought and in blogs and things that i've seen online and i thought I really have to do something to, to give people a voice, not from all sides, especially, you know, definitely from all sides, but especially the side that I, I didn't see being um, articulated that often or, or highlighted that often. So I think the Christians here are almost, I mean, I would, 
I don't think it's unanimous, but I would say it's a vast, vast majority would would think that um, I've said this before in my podcast that people almost list off these things as the great, terrible things in the world. You know, Brexit's terrible, Donald Trump's terrible. You know, all these things that are going on, they're just showing the downfall of the world almost. So, yeah, we're there's not a lot of support. It's fair to say. So you would, you would say Christians in in Great Britain are nearly unanimously opposed to Brexit, huh? Uh, I think that it's maybe slightly less so than Donald Trump, but maybe from from my experience, I can only talk from my experience, and I know Northern Ireland is more, um, slightly more against Brexit than pro-Brexit, 55, 45 kind of region, but um, I found that sort of in, I was at a church event just the day after the Brexit vote, or the week after maybe, I think, um, I can't remember, somehow I was able to, I was able to vote, but then I was at an event that night or something like that, or the day after it, it mm-hmm. all sort of came out. And uh, I remember the it was quite a large event. Someone got up to the front on stage and was kind of like, I know we're, we're going to be hurting today. I know there's uh, a lot of you are going to be emotional, not sure how to go forward with all this that's going on. I, I was just I had to laugh to myself because I thought, isn't it crazy that there's this assumption that everyone in the church is against it? And it's it's definitely driven a wedge between um, believers in, in some cases, I think, for sure, that there's just this assumption that, you know, uh, that everyone sort of falls in line under this one uh, point of view. And Northern Ireland traditionally was a conservative, the most conservative part of the UK and definitely the most uh, Christian, I guess you could say, most uh, faith-based in terms of the, the culture. But um, right. nowadays it's it's very clear that I think the vast majority of, of Christians and Christian leaders particularly are very much against Donald Trump, Brexit, these kind of more conservative movements. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Now, by the way, uh, well, before I get into that, I'm curious, what do these people think of Nigel Farage? You know, when he comes over here and speaks and speaks on programming, he, uh, he touts a Christian perspective, um, which I think he's sincere about, obviously. So, so the perception for Americans would be, Christian Americans in particular, would be that uh, Christians over in Great Britain mm-hmm. would be a little bit more fiscally conservative in the Nigel Farage I, sort of way. Yeah, I think that's totally the opposite of what the case really is in my experience. Um, Nigel Farage is almost universally thought of as a lunatic amongst most people, um, despite the huge amount of popular support that there is for him. I think at least in the, um, I don't know, maybe the more... <laughs> don't know how to to articulate this well people think it's more of a a common person's movement again kind of like people assume donald trump is the the uneducated southern person or that kind of stereotype they may think that nigel farage is supported by these kind of bigoted uh, council estate kind of um poor people that don't really understand what the world what's going on in the world and they're bigoted and these kind of things so um i personally think he's had a, a a phenomenally bad and unfair um He's got like a, just the media cover him really unfairly, and I know there's there's been some question over some of the the people that have been involved in UKIP and some of their um, views and people that have mm-hmm. just you know it, it attracts naturally just as Donald Trump does in some ways it attracts some more extreme elements, um, but I think Nigel Farage is very unfairly treated, and I think that again in the church you would I don't think I've ever heard anyone on at least in a position of authority, actually saying that Nigel Farage is anything but really a lunatic. (laughs) 
So, now, I, I mean, I have. But you have kind of your evangelical wing of the church compared to your more traditionalist. There, there it exists. Uh, yeah. Wing as well. It exists. Yeah. Um, I think it's more. You see a difference there between people that fall into those two camps. Yeah, people. People in the comments may disagree, and I encourage if anyone's listening to this podcast, you know, drop a comment below if you do uh, think I'm getting this wrong because it's from my perspective. But I think that the more conservative side is, um, almost it's it's definitely it's it's more represented by the elderly and that sort of thing is is almost gradually fading away like the, the church would have been we would have had a very very strong and conservative church in even 30 years ago you know with with Ian Paisley being the leader here he was a first and foremost a presbyterian leader and a church he was a preacher he would have said he was a preacher and a pastor before um he was a politician and that was his primary um calling but um that would have sort of been what the church was like really more firebrand preachers very conservative points of view but that's definitely people have seeked to to leave that behind almost and move in more progressive ways i think to kind of shed that kind of uh um reputation that the church did have mm-hmm. so nowadays i think that the more conservative side of things they're a minority for sure among all demographics but i think that the, the most of them would be older um more traditional churches kind of um you know the type the type of you know, church of ireland and presbyterian churches that maybe aren't either you know, the type that would sing hymns on sunday and wear their suits to church that kind of thing rather than the more um i don't know what how you would describe it in america but we would call them i guess you say like spirit-filled churches and those kind of more youthful and progressive mm-hmm. type churches so you wouldn't you wouldn't find too much too many people supporting Nigel Farage or or Brexit or those things in the, these younger church congregations. But mm-hmm. I mean, and we're kind of it's yeah. it's interesting. I was Go just ahead. gonna say it's interesting because I think it's very different. Obviously, you can maybe shine some light on this that there's even yeah. churches like Bethel, which are huge and, and very popular here as well in terms of their music, but they're very much in in support of the president. You know, that's something that that people might not really understand here. Do you want to even talk a little bit about your demographics and what it's like from in your Yeah, no, I think at, when you, you, it's interesting you bring up Bethel which uh <laughs> I would I'm I'm um I'm definitely a very far right capitalist. Mm-hmm. I believe the Bible is capitalistic and it's not socialist and we'll talk about that I'm sure as we go along here but um, but yet I come from a very traditionalist, uh, theological perspective. I come from a reformed perspective. I would call myself an Augustinian, but that would also put me in the Calvinist camp, uh, in the John Knox camp. Um, I'm very probably, uh, un- uh, can be described as Presbyterian theology, even though I've never gone to a Presbyterian right. church in my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so Bethel, you would find people in Bethel very it, uh, over in Redmond, Washington, very supportive of the president. By and large, you, you'd see some difference. But I mean, it would it'd be a pretty strong majority pro Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, of, course, of course, the north side, northern California is uh, San Francisco, which is as far left and progressive as you can get. But North California, where Redmond, Washington is, is very conservative. So that's kind of consistent with uh the politics there so that's interesting that that translates over into great britain uh similar political outlook well well, the music people who are big fans of bethel music probably would be um baffled as to why they support 
Trump. That's what I would see here. You know, I think every, every, the music is very popular among churches. Bethel and Hillsong, those kind of churches, mm-hmm. and Hillsong is, is slightly different. But Bethel, I think people might not be aware that they might actually be surprised to learn that they're so um, supportive of the president. I think people would be shocked almost if they actually did know that. But they don't always. Mm-hmm. I don't think people are always aware. They just know the songs. You know. Mm-hmm. But you're seeing in you're in the United States the church in general. Uh, is, and I define the church as anyone in an, in an orthodox manner, whether they're a mainline church or a more, and we have far more evangelical, non-denominationally uh, aligned churches in this mm-hmm. country than you would have in Great Britain, for sure. But, um, but in, anywhere in that range are going to be far more supportive of Donald Trump than not. But you are hearing a lot of, uh, frustration mm-hmm. with the church. I've got friends who share my political viewpoints and I've actually worked with mm-hmm. on political efforts. Some of whom are pulling out of politics, by the way, because they're getting so frustrated, but they're very anti-Trump and um, that's starting to grow a little bit in the church community mm-hmm. in this country. Of course, you're now in the United States, mainline denominations are far more politically progressive. Yes, I've noticed that. Than yeah. they than they are in in Europe, I think, in some ways. Well, when, when they're traditional. Yeah, the kind of your Episcopalian churches are definitely super progressive, and there are the progressive wing. Like I guess over here, if you think of the Church of England, which is I guess our equivalent, and the Church of Ireland, um, they their leadership may be heading in a more progressive way, but the the sort of everyday person maybe more conservative than than leadership would suggest so it's kind of i'm not right. really sure it's quite a broad church i think and li- quite literally a broad yeah. church in the and uh, in in that kind of our equivalent the anglican church um yeah but, uh, most other denominations i say would be fundamentally conservative in their in their outlook yeah yeah i mean it's interesting because they're uh progressives in this country are finding a home in 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 these more traditionalist mainline mm-hmm. denominations um they're actually being the, those churches in this country are seeking to reach those people they were more on the forefront of the homosexual marriage movement for example mm-hmm. um even though i know those denominations in your on your side of the pond are have been that way somewhat too, but there hasn't been unanimity yes, as much yeah. unanimity there in, in the lay people uh, as there has been here in the United mm-hmm. States in those mainline denominations. This, it is, it is kind of interesting. And some, some of these, uh, uh, these, the theological implications of a lot of this here in the United States, I think that there is a strong movement and I call myself in part, part of this movement to to work to maintain what i would perceive as theological purity on mm. on some of these social issues but also on these economic issues mm. i think though on both sides of the aisle the church tends to be far less uh capitalistic than uh than some would perceive even in this country i think there's a real confusion in the church about these ideas of economics that where where i find my home with hayek and von mises Mm -hmm. and milton friedman here in the united states 
uh, I don't I don't see the church on either side of mm. the pond. Uh, no, I don't inspired think so. by yeah. that. I don't think so. I think, um, well, yeah, there's definitely this confusion. Um, and I think I've, I've talked to people about this before, this confusion of um, it's that libertarianism, I guess, in ways you could say, or more liberal, liberal kind of viewpoints in terms of um, less intervention, less direct government intervention. Um, I was talking to um, the guys from the Libertarian Christians Institute recently, and they you know, had this conversation about this being perceived as a, a nasty or mean-spirited kind of theology where you don't want to help other people but um people i think maybe don't understand that very rarely will these points of view come about from a place of of we're just pure greedy and don't want to help people generally it's because they think that's the best way to help others is to to promote this kind of capitalist and free market um view viewpoint and maybe you know i think that's definitely misunderstood where people think that just results to pure greed and people who don't want to to see the government intervene and, and just almost hand money to people this kind of idea of a universal basic income i guess is the epitome of all this really where um people think the government should just basically hand people their their paycheck and that's the the fairest way to do it but i don't think people understand that um people who aren't for that it's not because they're greedy. It's because they think it's the best way for the best thing for people. Yeah. In fact, I would argue that uh, there's no place in scripture that where a government is commanded to meet the needs of welfare. I would mm. say actually here in the United States, and I would say also in Great Britain as well, governmentally, that government has a monopoly over philanthropy. Right. I mean, we, there's yes. still philanthropy that happens outside of that nexus, mm -hmm. but it, but it's actually, uh, I think most people through their taxes are looking to government to fulfill their needs of philanthropy rather than yep. hearing the scriptural command that you individually are called to mm -hmm. care for the poor, to, to meet yep. the need of the, uh, of the person who comes from another country. You know, that, that, that is an individual command mm. I see throughout Scripture. And that's one of the interesting dynamics of the way that the church, I think, perceives government action. Well, this has been a huge theme on our blog since it's been started, where I've seen it's it's come from a number of contributors, and uh, especially in discussions. You know, I, I, I had a, a recent um, interview with, with Anne Whittacombe, who was really, I guess you could say, one of the top three guys, or, well, she's sorry, she's a woman, but one of the top three <laughs> people in charge of the of the Brexit party, really, or one of the most prominent figures. She said the exact same thing, where, um, you know, it's this idea that people think the government, the government um, providing these kinds of programs and, and starting up all these different, uh, you know, philanthropic kind of um programs and ideas you know that this somehow abdicates you from your responsibility to to help others and it basically is just it's outsourcing your um your charitable kind of giving and it's outsourcing that kind of whole aspect of faith to to the government and i think that's definitely a huge issue really um or presents a huge issue theologically because um it, it i don't really see that there's a moral benefit really to to sort of withdrawing from getting your hands dirty i didn't really see that that it's really equivalent uh morally to to say someone else can do that for me and that i don't have to do it. you know i've paid my taxes that i am content that the poor is being taken care of and all these things because of the government i don't know if, if that really yeah i just don't i just don't get it myself i don't i couldn't really be on board with that uh, viewpoint yeah i think i think it's fair for a lot of christians 
to look at these more libertarian-minded movements, however it's mm-hmm. styled uh, in Europe or here. Uh, my my big beef with the Libertarian Party here, which w- with whom I largely agree when it comes to mm-hmm. economic principle, but I've often said that the big problem with the Libertarian Party here in the United States is the way they act. You would think that their whole f- philosophy and mission statement was, if we can make drugs and prostitution legal, then we'll all be free. I mean, that's kind of yeah, substantively, way, yeah. yeah it, it really comes across that way. And I think I think it's more critical you know so areas like drugs or whatever i mean i think we've had a a real criminal justice problem in this Hmm. country by by making it uh, but by putting so much emphasis on putting people in jail just for possessing drugs as opposed to you know being aggressive at people who actually undertake violent activities or activities Hmm. where they steal and harm from others um in a restorative restitutional form of justice mm-hmm. is really what we need anywhere. I think that's really more God's plan than just, we don't like your behavior. So yeah, therefore we're going up, yeah. to. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that concept in, in Liberty, but I, I believe capitalism or at least, and it's hard to use that word because it's yeah, so, so tinted, filled yeah. with political stuff, both from the Marxist perspective and from the libertarian perspective, but capitalism is the best, way to have people fulfill what uh, the, actually most of the moral commands of God. I mean, because because I think um, when you, like I, I would say that I had a radio show in Denver for four years uh, before I went to work in Congress in 2010. Mm-hmm. And I would t- constantly talk about if you're just the greediest jerk in the world and you want to be a billionaire, what do you have to do? No, you have to have a product that people want. You have to keep updating that product Mm -hmm. by talking to them. You have to have employees who deliver that product well or manufacture it well or service or whatever. You got to treat them well. Yeah, I mean, if you really want to be wealthy, you know. Not easy to be Yeah, so that's right. And so all along the way in the process, you got to keep going back to your employees and to your customers and say, what do you need? And ultimately... If you, even if you remain the greediest bastard in the world, yep. you know, you've got to follow the golden rule do, to get yeah. wealthy. And, and again, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's pretty close to perfect. Yeah. Cause well, that's ultimately at the end, what the capitalist system does. It values people who perform for others uh-huh. as opposed to yes, performing exactly. for themselves. Whereas the perception is that the capitalist is greedy and taking advantage of others. Yeah. Like you said, it's impossible to, to get rich quick really anywhere in a capitalist society it's just whereas in a socialist world you know you just have to know the right people and be connected in that way and i'm not saying that doesn't exist in some ways in, in a capitalist world but yeah it but, can of course um, really in order to to rise to the top really you have to be you have to make people want to work for you because you know they have to they have to have some degree of loyalty really for you to do well so people need to be loyal to your product they need to think it's good enough to be worth coming back to people need to to want to come into work the next day and not just quit and go to work somewhere else they have to have the right sort of conditions and i think uh, people people often think you know ideas like the minimum wage um yeah. are ways to guarantee um that workplaces are have the right conditions and and are fair for their employees but really that's just setting kind of like a lowest common denominator like people it's saying you can go this low rather than saying you have to be this high because realistically if people weren't happy with the wages they're being paid they wouldn't take the job in the first place so um 
Yeah, you could, if it's a free society yeah. where they can actually make that exactly, choice, yeah. and that's that's the fundamental aspect of uh, of a capitalist society mm -hmm. is that the worker and the producer or the capitalist mm -hmm. all have the ability to make choices. Mm -hmm. And to be candid, workers can become capitalists if yeah. they work hard enough. Absolutely. That's that's see, I think that's a fundamentally biblical principle. I think in so my too, mind, yeah. and it's. I think it's so difficult to hear Christians so often talk about um, the injustices and inequities of free market systems. And, and it's like, you, you're not asking all the right questions. There are injustices and inequities. I mean, hello, we live in a fallen world. There's mm -hmm. no way to escape that. You, as I say, 6,000 years of recorded human history proves the moral depravity of man. You, you're not going to get away from that construct, which mm -hmm. is also biblical yes. and well and, and mm -hmm. clearly stated. But they, they don't ask questions about, okay, so we see greed in this capitalist, but do you ever see government greed? I mean, I, this recent revelation on Joe Biden is we're just in the run-up to the November 3rd election where he was working with his family and using his position as vice president mm -hmm. to rake in bill, literally billions of dollars into his family. And, of course, plausible deniability. You know, they're doing all the work, yeah. but it's coming to me through them. Listen, this kind of greed is is very real i mean yeah is there a socialist society that's not greedy as you mentioned yep, nope. if you want if you want to become get rich quick in a socialist society we'll get connected to the government and steal from people yeah you know? exactly yeah so and margaret thatcher used to have you know the the great saying when people talked about the gap between the the richest and the person society you know she would say that you know if people who are um advocates for socialist systems you know they would rather that, uh, for example, that the the poor be here and the rich be here, rather than yeah. you know, the poor being here and the rich being higher. You just you know they they're more yeah. concerned about it the all gap. lifts up, yeah. yeah. Rather than rather yeah. than you know, people being so like the gaps in society being so small, you rather you know people were higher and there'd be a bigger gap. You know that's just maybe the way things. That, I think that's the fairer way for things to work themselves out because really what I mean really in the socialist world you have sort of the poor. And then the rich, and then the leaders that are just off the off the chart. So, yeah, yeah, I don't. It's funny how that happens in in communist and socialist countries where the gap is yeah. enormous. You know, you would think they would be the the systems where there would be no gap at all. And and Marx obviously talked about the kind of falling away of the state in the end. But human nature makes that impossible in my in my eyes for this utopian society where people are completely yeah. obsessed with making sure everyone's taken care of. Like I just don't see that happening. And I think capitalist thought maybe provides the best construct for for the greedy and the the people who are truly selfish to be restricted from exploiting others you know i think that's capitalism means that if you're purely interested in yourself you won't really get anywhere unless you're like yeah. like we said you're super well connected but you mentioned your time in congress obviously do you want to tell people who are listening just a little bit about their your background and um who you are really and what what sort of inspired you to get involved in the political world just really for my listeners who don't know you yet well, I came to Christ uh, as a 16-year-old in 1981, and it was a pretty radical transformation for me. I was a, I was a lost young kid, and I um, it it just it changed my entire perspective. I mean, it was a real conversion experience. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of people that have a problem delineating that sometimes, and, and in some cases because 
they never really came to Christ at all. But in many cases, just, you know, they were working through a lot of things in life and trying to figure it all out. Mm -hmm. For me, it was very dramatic. And um, I already, I was already in a family. My dad had uh, at his height, 103 fast food restaurants in Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia. And, and he was passionate about politics, even though he never got involved in it himself. We Mm -hmm. sat and watched the TV and I heard him grousing about, (laughs) you know, all that was going on, but he had really good insights and wisdom as to what was happening. Mm -hmm. So that kind of laid a foundation. But when I came to Christ, and as I said, this whole moral majority thing was coming, I was very concerned about the issue of abortion and about about moral issues. I Mm -hmm. was delving a little bit into this economic perspective of what's just and free, but I was coming from a pure constitutionalist perspective as well, because I was in school, I was studying the Constitution, I was very interested in it. And I was also very interested in the uh, moral foundations of our country. I learned that the United States really did have a moral foundation. I think there's an argument about it, because it's often touted by by people in the evangelical right here that we're a Christian, we were founded as a Christian nation. I, I don't know that that's actually a, a really easy and clear right, yeah. thing to lay out there, but, but no doubt we were founded on Judeo-Christian principles. I think so, in fact, yeah. the ideas of the natural law, which really were first well codified through St. Thomas Aquinas um, and were alluded to and discussed to some extent by Augustine, I think there is a Christian and moral foundation. I mean, Aquinas's arguments for the existence of God and his arguments for the natural law were fundamental to Western jurisprudence, Western um, idealism when it came to um, uh, the formation of governments. All of this I was taking in as a young person. First, I went to an elite private high school in Tennessee called the Webb School. That's where I came to Christ. Um, And then I ended up at Indiana University and, and I'm grappling with these things, and I'm starting to deal so both in the political end and on the philosophical end. I was an English major uh, at Indiana University. So I'm, I'm really thinking about these things. Along the way, my passion for politics was there. I got involved in campus political activity at Indiana University. But then later on in 1992, I'm sitting in our current vice president, Mike Pence's office in Indianapolis, he was running the Indiana policy review at the time. And we, we had some connections. Uh, He was from Columbus, Indiana, about an hour or so South of Indianapolis, Mm. but he was living on the South side of Indianapolis, which is where I grew up. Right. I always tell people I'm from Indianapolis. We run a little race there. You might've heard of, (laughs) and uh, which is a great joke all around the world. It doesn't just work here, but, um, so anyway, we're talking and, and I told him, you know, I just, I feel like I need to get involved in the political realm. And so there, he was meeting a guy right after me mm-hmm. who gave me my first political job, a guy named George Whitwer. He ended up running for governor. I ended up running his gubernatorial campaign wow. in 96. But prior to that, I was running state legislative campaigns. He, he, was, he had an organization that was supporting state legislative candidates. So that kind of got me involved in full-time politics. And I worked as a consultant. I I did various things here and there, but I mostly worked as a consultant until uh, 2005 when uh, I went to work for Focus on the Family, 
for those in the United States, they've, they know who Dr. James Dobson is. Some people in Europe might or might not know about him, but basically his ministry actually did a lot of real ministry work, helping women in crisis pregnancies, uh, providing ultrasounds as a way to encourage, to get into these crisis pregnancy centers and to, as a way to encourage women to come in and not get the abortion, keep the child. Um, they did other ministry too, philanthropically, but they had a portion where Dr. Dobson was very concerned about where we were going as a country politically and how Christians could rightly be involved in a biblical way. So I worked in the public policy department at Focus on the Family. It was set up as a, not the typical nonprofit organization, but in, in a, a, that could do political activity. And I was involved with that. But I went into consulting and I went on the radio. I was doing work around the country. And uh, I ended up a gentleman named Tim Hillscamp, who had become a friend of mine many years hence, had won a congressional race. Mm -hmm. And in 2010, I was trying to help him find a chief of staff. I was connected in DC and I just wanted him to get someone that could really help him out. Mm -hmm. Nothing really worked. And he asked me to be his chief of staff. So I ended up in Washington from 2010, late 2010 until 2014. And I left and came back to Colorado. I, I was uh, focused on the families based in Colorado. I moved here in 2005, but I came back to Colorado in 2014, was doing work around here, doing consulting work. And then uh, Congressman Thomas Massey from Kentucky asked me to be his chief of staff. So I went back for a couple more years. I'm now back in Colorado. We live in Woodland Park, Colorado. Um, I'm actually on the city council here in Woodland Park, wow, yeah. but I'm still, you know, I have, I, through all these years of things that I've done, I've, I know a lot of people in the White House right now working mm -hmm. in the Trump administration who are friends of mine. Uh, Kellyanne Conway, mm -hmm. who was his uh, uh, advisor, is a really good friend of mine. I, I've, I've just found myself, and the Lord has put me in to the political realm mm -hmm. where I, no one is going to doubt that I am a born-again Christian and committed to walking with Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. But I don't wear it on my shoulder, but there's no way you're not going to know yeah. who I am. And and so early on, in those early days when I started getting interested in politics, I, I spent a lot of time in prayer before God, just thinking through what am what am I supposed to do in this? What does a yeah. Christian do in this dirty, nasty business? I mean, it really is dirty and nasty, I'm telling mm -hmm. you. I worked at Indiana Family Institute with a guy named Bill Smith. It was a pro-family organization in Indiana. Bill eventually became Mike Pence's chief of staff when he was in Congress and is still a close political advisor to the vice president today. But Bill taught me something very valuable. He said, listen, if you're going to be a Christian working in politics and, do, and trying to move political action, mm -hmm. you're going to have to maintain your moral character, which means you're going to have to work harder than anyone else because you can't do moral yeah. shortcuts. Mm -hmm. These moral shortcuts exist throughout politics. Uh, Ronald Reagan always said that politics is the world's second oldest profession, and it's very much like the oldest one, right. <laughs> which yeah. is prostitution, yeah. by the way, yeah. for people who don't know the analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, and that takes a lot of effort as a Christian believer. You have to work harder. You mm. have to be better at what you do. But I will tell you, so as I've worked through politics all these years, um, what I understood in working harder was that you also ha have to stop being so nice and stop uh, catering 
to everyone. There, you know, there's a place where you read, for example, um, Nehemiah, mm-hmm. and and Nehemiah is back to build rebuild the wall in yeah. Jerusalem. Well, I'm going to tell you, he was he was a sharp guy. He was very dedicated and devoted, but the criticism he certainly yeah. Uh, when Sanballat and those were coming mm-hmm. against him, he obviously opposed those guys. Yeah. But his harshest words were for the people working on the wall. He wasn't just being nice to them and, oh, okay, well, I know it's so tough for you. He's like, no, put up your freaking shields and the rest <laughs> of you get on the wall yeah. and get working. This was serious to him. And I believe that if the Christian, as it relates to politics, should not at all be nice. Nice mm. is a very selfish thing. It's what's pleasing to me, what really mm. is acceptable to me. What we should do is undertake God's uh, per, commanded uh, 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 characteristic of kindness, which is always looking to yes, the benefit yeah. of others. And I always say, so this is how, why I call my podcast Against yeah, Nice. I was going to ask so about that. Yeah. I say on one side, the, the parent who is not disciplining their child cannot be considered very kind, but the child being disciplined mm-hmm. never thinks it's very nice. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. We, we need to have this thought of kindness, which will cause us to speak out in society. And I use Nehemiah as an example, but there are many others in scripture mm-hmm. where this example is there. Not perfect people. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart and probably committed worse sins than any major character yeah. in the Bible, mm-hmm. at least that we know about. And so, um, it's not about per- personal perfection. It's about understanding God's justice. And so Micah 6, 8 is, is the fundamental scripture that I look to when I talk mm-hmm. about this. He, he, God, has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does he require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Justice is a serious issue. Yep. And if we're going to stand for God's justice as he sees it, not as we see it, then that's going to require difficult conversations mm-hmm. in the society. But kindness is going to bring us back around where if we're promoting this justice, we're also not trying to do it in our own way, but in mm-hmm. God's way and, and with the thoughtfulness of others. Jesus, it, it is said of him in the New Testament, never harmed a broken reed, but he did call the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Yeah. There is a brood of vipers out there that we need to call out. Mm. They're usually the Christians, <laughs> by the way, or the people of faith, but there are others too. And then to walk humbly with your God. We need to entirely undertake a, an, a, an attitude of humility. In fact, I had young people working for mm. me when I was in Washington, D.C., very young. They're, I mean, most, most staffers are 30 and less. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I would always tell them, you need to have an attitude, frankly, of humiliation. This is the way I talk about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You need to be willing to be humiliated because the quickest way to fix a problem is to admit it immediately. And that requires humiliation. Yeah, yeah. And I think we need that Christians that have these attitudes in them involved in the political mm, realm, yeah. whether they're an MP in London mm. or whether they're a congressman in Washington, D.C. or a state legislator yeah. here in our states. This is really important. Just we need more people like yourself, this. Yeah. To, to, yeah. To, but yet be firm and yet be a fighter mm. for what matters. Yeah. So, so I guess naturally, you know, following on from what you said, I think it's amazing. And I think the vision really is a, um, a very you obviously have a very clear vision. I think it's a, a, a great one. Uh, some people might say then, for example, this is one of the biggest topics of discussion, I think, for believers today, 
that uh, and we've seen John Piper talking about it. Uh, we're currently recording mm-hmm. about a week before the election. I think I'm going to release this a yes. little later. So for anyone listening, that's this is the context. So uh, John Piper said basically that this idea of someone who speaks in ways that are coarse or vulgar or maybe not as polished, that's as grave a sin really as the policy side of things. And when people hear maybe against nice and that you're a conservative, does that mean that you, right. you know, does that mean that you support perhaps Donald Trump's style of being what some could say is definitely not nice, you know, mean, maybe derogatory in some ways, but he gets things done. You know, what's your opinion on, on that side of things? I, 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 I think I've described that a little bit in the concept as I've shared it so far, but um, I do believe that some aspects of what Donald Trump does mm-hmm. are absolutely within the wheelhouse of the Christian. I have deep respect for John Piper. I mean, we're, he and I are obviously on the same page when it comes to reformed theology. Mm -hmm. I'm 100% with him. I think he's one of the most fantastic and clear thinking uh, pastors and Mm -hmm. theologians in the world. My, my, my personal favorite is R.C. Sproul of Ligonier Ministries. I mean, he's like, like the best in my mind, but I love what John Piper has to say and, and how he approaches ministry pastoral ministry in particular, Mm -hmm. and theology in general. I think what happens for Christians, and this is why I call it against nice, not because we need to uh, be jerks, be unkind, be, you know, uh, have it. uh, There was this one congressman I knew of the many that I know who woke up every single day and and said to himself, how can I screw leadership today? (laughs) Now, I don't think that that's, I don't think that's the way a Christian needs to be doing politics. By the way, you know, John Brown, who was really the instigator, historically, one would say, of our movement of the Civil War and getting rid of the slavery in this country, was a jerk. He 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 claimed Christ. Mm-hmm. The guy was really mean. I you know, and and I think that there was something providential God was doing right. here in the United States at that time and through him in some ways. But do I think that people need to be that way? No, I don't think that that's the answer. But we do need to be purposeful. Hmm. We need to recognize that if we're going to stand for true justice, true justice, we are going to be ostracized in society. And that means people are going to perceive us like they perceive Donald Trump. Hmm. I'm not certain that every tactic that Donald Trump uses yeah. is always the best one. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not saying that that he's the person to mimic, but my, my, um, when I the way I oppose what John Piper is saying is that I think we ask a lot of times in the church all the wrong questions. So the question is not we were never in Scripture commanded to be perceived as nice or thoughtful, right, or kind. Quite the opposite. You look at you look at Paul uh, in Athens on Mars Hill. You look at uh, Paul in front of some of the main leaders of the time as he was Mm -hmm. going up to the place where he was imprisoned and ultimately killed. Um, You look at Stephen uh, in Acts when um, just before he stoned and the things that he said to the Jewish leaders at that time, you know, our goal is not perception of kindness and niceness. Our goal is to, yeah, that's right. It's and but and when you go into uh, Micah six eight, that word to love kindness 
which also some translate as loving kindness. That's the Hebrew word chesed. Very difficult to translate into English, Mm -hmm. but a very critical word in the Old Testament. The desire, and this is why I say that kindness is thinking of the benefit of others. That is not connected to their perception of you benefiting them. It's connected to God's justice, Mm -hmm. God's personality, who he is. You know, one of the great things that we've lost in the church in Western culture and maybe in other places around the world and other cultures is that we, the, the undertaking of theology is lost. In other words, the study of God, right? We spend a whole lot of time thinking about how we can be blessed. Um, what our prayer Mm. life can be like, um, whether we're holy and pious, Mm. all these things are important, but in in and of themselves, unless you are seeking God's righteousness, Mm. you're not there. And the only way to get there is to know who he is. Dwelling in the word really is what you're sort of saying there. You know, just people maybe uh, neglect that side of things and and really the study of of God's character through the word and through all of scripture that that we've have and we maybe take that for for granted you know having this resource available to us that sort of lists all it's just a a complete directory of of god's character from start to finish so i think that's very easily neglected and so you mentioned obviously that you um are familiar with a lot of people in the white house and you're friendly with a lot of them and uh connected to them um when people say i actually saw this today that um trump's white house is kind of uh very clearly not catered towards helping people and it's more as a selfish kind of an administration and um, from your experience of the people that you know that are involved do you doubt at all their intentions are are good or do you that do you trust the people that that donald trump has around him in his administration for the most part now that kind of some of the people that were working against him have been weeded out the answer is yes hmm. um i think that in this sense in the sense you're talking about donald trump gets a negative rap because he's falling more fundamentally into these principles of liberty that I think are are absolutely important mm-hmm. and that Christians should accept. Listen, I don't want Christians to become libertarians, okay, in, in the sense that we understand that word, because some people are, as I talked about earlier, you know, if sex and, and prostitution and drugs are legal, then we'll all be free, I think is not okay. the biblical way of looking things. But there is a principle of liberty, and I think it should have political consequences as well Mm. that Christians should understand from Scripture. God's commands are to us individually to help others. Mm -hmm. So most of this negativity that comes against the Trump administration, I'm taking the man a little bit out of the picture, talking about the administration as a whole, is that there is an attempt there in most areas of his administration, not all, Mm-hmm. to uh, reassert constitutional principles. Yep. And that looks hateful to a lot of people. Even some Christians yep. look at it that way because they've got it in their mind that if the government's not doing something, then then we've mm-hmm. got a problem. I I will tell you that attitude that you talk about I, is, is a misrepresentation of the White House. But let me double down on that because having worked in, on Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. And uh, and in Republican politics, I am either acquainted with or know pretty well most of the Republican congressmen there and most of them that claim Christ. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you this, most of those guys vote like Satan. 
because they believe that we need to take government action to assert these things that are of a Christian character that we're concerned about as Christians. To the contrary, you should be preaching that in society. You should be uh, showing it in society. Mm. That's where it gets done. You can't get it done by government. I think Christians are lazy about leaving all that to government. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, you'll never convince anyone by forcing them to do something. You know, you'll just, you just make them resentful. And I guess in Northern Ireland, this was a, a big issue because we held out for so much longer than the rest of the UK on the, um, the gay marriage and abortion type issues and i think i think both of them are now legally covered in northern ireland but for a long time we were the only part of the uk that we provided civil unions and uh things like that but we didn't provide for um gay marriage as a a state supported state sanctioned idea um and part of me you know i have my views as a christian but you know you wonder does that do much more harm than good to compel people that you know they have to get on a plane to fly to england to have a to get married to someone who is of the same sex as they are and whether you agree with that i think is is your own choice but i think that that's that sort of approach where you make people inherently resentful of the powers that be and especially because the dup is such an overtly christian party um at least mm-hmm. that's what they claim they, a lot of it you know their their formation and their background is obviously for me and paisley like i said was a, a church minister uh, so they're an overtly christian party mm-hmm. but i think that caused a huge amount of resentment uh, towards people of faith you know just because of this idea that they want to tell us what to do they want to force us to, to do all these things and i think it, it worked against the church in the end and i would be very sort of cautious about any government system where you you sort of set that up to tell people what they can and can't do on you know these kind of social issues and drugs is one that i struggle with like you said you know it's a tough one because um and prostitution those kind of things they're all tough issues but i guess they have to be viewed through the lens of what in the end is uh number one what is good for society and what's good for i guess your your witness as a christian and, and what's good for spreading the gospel more you know if you if you restrict people's access to um and obviously abortion is a very different issue to the gay marriage but if you if you restrict people's access to gay marriage then is that going to really benefit the building of the church and the furthering of the gospel in the end because at the end of the day you know as long as the church isn't being forced to condone it themselves does it matter what the state does you know it's it's not the state is not the church and is not the the sort of apparatus of the kingdom really you know so it's a it's a separate institution so should you be that, yeah. that concerned about what they what they recognize so it's very difficult you know to, to to see these issues and work them out in terms of what we should intervene in and what we shouldn't but do you have a rule of thumb really when deciding where um you were to draw the line on this is something that we can legislate on and, and should be uh legislating on and these are things that we can leave to people to their own choice yeah um you know it's interesting homosexual marriage became legal in this country by means of the supreme court in the obergefell decision Mm -hmm. um my disagreement with that is constitutional uh there's no they argued for homosexual marriage to be legal on constitutional grounds there are no constitutional grounds one way or the other Mm. related to to what the definition of marriage is and uh, i personally think that should be a state-by-state decision unless and i was a supportive of a constitutional amendment to define marriage as one man and one woman uh in this country now if we took that constitutional process 
then that would be appropriate. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. I will say this. Um, I have been arguing that, and I don't know how, how marriage in the church is in Europe. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm, I just culturally am not connected well enough there to understand. I'm more culturally connected with India yeah. where I've been quite a bit, right. uh, but I haven't seen it in operation, operating on a day-to-day basis in Europe because I haven't been there a lot, but I can tell you how marriage operates in this country mm-hmm. and, and the church in the church. And it's not very good to be candid. Statistically, we're just as bad as the the rest of society and in some areas maybe a, a little bit worse when it comes to issues like divorce adultery yep. some all these moral components um, of marriage and i've said very publicly the reason we have homosexual marriage in this church in this country is not because of homosexual activists it's because of the christians we yeah. suck at marriage in this country. We're really bad. <clears throat> in fact, we have so many heretical ideas related to marriage, and we don't mm. go back to Scripture. Uh, from, a, from a political and governmental point of view, I, I, don't see the, I don't see the utility of government making marriage better. I would I would be fine if we had no marriage laws in this country, right? Yeah, and then Christians made their own marriage laws with yeah, one another is, and held themselves yeah. accountable. That's the way it was for a long period of time, and I think I think we do such a poor job. You know, Justin Martyr in the second century BC uh, wrote his apology to Antonius Pius of um, the, the, the then Roman emperor. And, and he didn't write an apology saying, I'm sorry, we're so bad. No, this was his argument for, as, as Peter said, you know, you need to make a, a defense of the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's the Greek word, apologia. Um, Justin Martyr's apology, which was the defense of the church and of Christian teaching, he was able rightly to argue to the Roman emperor that, look, we follow the laws. We do the things that we're supposed to do. We pay our taxes. We go out into the woods, which was, this was the form of abortion at the time. We go out into the woods and we save those children that were thrown out to the elements and Mm. we raise them and we teach them to be good citizens as well. I do not believe someone like Justin Martyr could make that argument for the character of the church in this day and age. He, Justin Martyr rightly could then. I think we, judgment begins in the house of God. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of work to do yeah, as Christians. So in one sense, I promote that we need to be out there in the political sphere making arguments, particularly in this country where, you know, our constitution starts, we the people in order to form a more perfect union, not the government to form a perfect union mm-hmm. for the people, but right. the other way around. Christians in this society should be making political arguments, should get involved at whatever level is appropriate for them. I'm not saying everyone needs to get elected and all this kind of stuff, but they do need to vote and they do need to tell their friends about these principles because this government was founded by the people. I mean, that's a little bit different in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. The government founded the government. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In yeah. Great Britain, if, we, if we're really honest yeah. about it. That's one uh-huh. interesting difference between us. Now, you do it in, in a way that is right and, is, and gives works, yeah. authority and rights to the people. But ours was literally founded that way. So I'm not saying, though, that we need to become all politicians because on the other side of that, we need to be good, really good in the church. I was going to er, mention earlier <clears throat> this uh, whole idea of uh, Micah 6.8. 
you know, it's interesting. God's the center of his word. Mm. He's the center of worship for the Christian, for the believer. He is the center of all things because he created all things. But my one beef with Hillsong and, and um, what's their faces in Redmond? Bethel, thank you. Is sometimes that their worship songs are all about me, right? Yeah, They're not about God. That, yeah. mm-hmm. the, the beauty of the hymns is they are praise to God. They theologically repeat who God is and his character. I was, Meyer and I, my wife Meyer and I are starting to go to a new church and uh, I, we've gotten to know this pastor. He's a good guy. And I went into their worship service a couple weekends ago. And at the end I said, you know, it's just really nice to be in a worship service. That's not all about me. Yeah. <laughs> that's about God. Yeah. What... <laughs> I think we miss that in the church. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, um, a lot of work and a lot of hymns and music that Bethel written that I, that I really do. Yeah, like. they're great. Yeah. There, there's, yeah. um, obviously each person has to discern, you know, and especially I was involved as a, um in worship in our church so i was involved in kind of you know deciding in ways which of these are are beneficial to the church and some of them you know i I tended to stay away with a lot from a lot of the ones that are just kind of uh saying the word good ten thousand times those kind of ones that maybe i like i like the ones with a little bit more meat but again there's a lot of ones that maybe were more simple and uh funnily enough you know this reminds me of um another topic that maybe we could briefly talk on because i know we've been going on for a while and i don't want to keep you too long but um this whole idea of, of Sean from Bethel and the, the kind of let us worship thing. And, you know, this, I'm sure you've seen the kind of, I guess you could say protests around the, the nation where he's kind of going around and especially in, in DC at the minute with these larger kind of worship oh, yeah. events. Um, do you have any opinions on, on that? Cause a lot of people make the same argument of the church should be maybe more caring and considerate of those who, you know, spreading this virus that could kill people. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I see both sides of the argument as, as fair. Um, I think that he, perhaps goes um above and beyond maybe what i would in terms of you know the crowds are very organic and just you know people are there praising with less consideration of the of the health aspects but i do understand as well that this people who love their life will will lose it you know people who love this life and are so obsessed with you know perhaps you know and this is the thing as well people no one's forcing anyone to go out if people are vulnerable they should stay at home if they're not comfortable they should totally stay at home but i think as well yeah. people um forget this this idea of worship above all else and serving god above all else and if people are getting healed and saved then you know surely it has to be a good thing even if there is some small risk of catching a a fairly right it's not a severe disease in terms of yes there's a lot of people dying but for the vast majority for the vast of people, majority yeah. it's a fairly mild illness so what's your opinions on that i'm sure you've seen it uh on social media uh, he, and like. he actually he, he actually went down the hill from here in woodland park down in colorado springs mm-hmm. uh he did a, a worship thing i was unable to go to it i was planning to to be candid mm-hmm. um so we know statistically right now about this that 99 point literally 99.97 percent chance for people under 40 Mm -hmm. to survive this you go above 40 99.98 okay (laughs) and then you get into this 70 and older you're talking about 99.5 percent so where's the risk the risk is with older people it's Mm -hmm. not with younger people and i i believe i had the disease i need to get tested for antibodies i haven't done it yet but i'm I'm convinced that my wife and I both got it mm-hmm. in February. Uh, the way we got the flu and that we were sick. We're pretty certain that that's what it was. But um, so 
in this country, we have never, ever, ever, ever shut down large swaths of our economy because of a virus and a disease. The Spanish flu, both in Europe and here, was horrible in 1918, 19, and 20. Horrible. And people were dying. We didn't shut down the country. We did do isolation, yeah. right? And, and that's appropriate in this. Mm -hmm. So my philosophy on all this, both from a Christian perspective and from a political one, is that what you do is make sure the information is excellent from the scientists, that it is not political. But when you're going to, when you sh go and shut down a country, and this, this applies to Boris Johnson or mm -hmm. Donald Trump or any other world leader. When you go to shut down a country, you make the science political of necessity because those scientists have to meet the requirements that the political leaders give them. Yep. Scientists don't have authority in this country to shut things down. That's the political leader's mm. decision. And it's so hard but to constitutionally, discern. Constitutionally. You know, so hard huh? to discern. It, it's really hard to yeah. discern you know, what is political, what is purely health-based. And people say we should go totally by what the health guys say. But then, you know, you, you do tend to neglect what happens to the person who loses their, their whole livelihoods. And, you know, that I couldn't even yeah. imagine that ruins lives, literally, almost in a worse way in some cases because instead of you know maybe instead of a death then you have poverty and and even suicide things like that so um people tend to neglect that but yeah it's hard to decipher you know what is um all political talk and what is the the, the scientific advice you know on, on the health front well put it in this context no bureaucrat in great britain or the united states lost their job over this yep. virus mm -hmm. consider that for a second Yep. But millions of people lost their jobs. Some, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, have permanently lost their small businesses. Um, mm -hmm. You talked about in Wales that the large grocery stores were closed in favor of the small ones. That's pretty good, and it's unique. I know that here in the United States, all the big box stores like the Walmarts and the Targets and mm -hmm. some of these large concerns that we have, they didn't shut, they didn't shut down. The small businesses were shut down. Yep. Restaurant, the restaurant industry in this country, in some areas of it, is nearly decimated. It's probably mm -hmm. the same there, too. Hotels London is not going to be here, the yeah. same. New York City is not going to be this, the same. You, you, both cities that have great restaurant mm -hmm. uh, services, they're, they're half gone, and they're never coming back, or at least not in this, the short This run. is a huge fear for me because... Having visited New York, I think it's one of the most amazing places on earth, you know, that I've been to. And, you know, politics yeah. aside, it's it's like a place really yeah. that's like no other. Um, right. And I'm, I'm worried that my wife's never been and that the New York that we end up going to won't be the New York that I was that I saw maybe 2016. I think it was I was there, you know, and, right. and I just worry what will be left of these cities. How long will it take for the recovery? And, you know, is the government right. making it worse in some ways? Yeah. Listen, you're, you, how many pubs are going to be left in, uh, in London hmm. or in Manchester or even up in Northern Ireland, anywhere yeah, in Northern it's Ireland? The hotels so many of them are gone. Well, yeah. Hotels. Yeah. I everything. mean, that, that's right. So um, th th it was absolutely unnecessary. The way you deal with things like this is great information that's mm -hmm. not tied to any political effort. The, all these politicians that illegally, frankly, in this country, based on our laws, shut down these states they didn't go to the legislature it wasn't a legislative vote and in this country the legislature votes for this stuff right it, you don't have 
uh, a king or a queen, you know, so to speak. And so this, this has been uh, uh, horrible that way. Every Christian should be up in arms about it, but so many Christians are compliant. By the way, churches were treated worse in this country than businesses. One of the, the great examples, and the Supreme Court ruled, in my opinion, against the religious liberties laid out in the First Amendment in this country. Uh, there was a church in Las Vegas that was limited to, or churches in Las Vegas were limited to 50 people, mm -hmm. but casinos yeah. were allowed to have 50% occupancy. Yeah. And the uh, Supreme Court ruled in favor of the governor with that policy. Seriously, yeah. you got a church of a thousand, you got a, a few churches there that have 500 to a thousand or more members that were limited to 50 people, but the casinos were half and filled. Same with it's John, crazy. With John MacArthur's church is a prime example right. as well. And again, it's, it divides opinion a lot. And uh, I think that there are good arguments on both sides, um, you know, of people that are for it and against it. But um, to me, you know, I, I totally understand when people want to continue to worship and are willing to take that risk. I think that should be something that is allowed to happen and, and people can't be restricted from doing that. But whether people should is another question. That's for each person to, to decide themselves. But the fact that the government would tell people this is too risky, you know, you don't stop people skydiving. You don't stop people driving down the, the highway where there's probably a greater chance in some ways of, of getting hit or, or totaling your car and dying than there is of catching the disease and, and, and dying from it. But yeah, I, I think that, that freedom has to prevail in these circumstances where people are divided. You know, you have to rule on the side of 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 um you know, allowing people to make their own choices, especially you know, just where people are are not sure which way to go. Just go with go with freedom and allow people to decide themselves. You know, let it Well and on the other them. side of this debate here, you've got people who are all for freedom and agree with me that the government shouldn't be shutting down stuff. But as Christians sometimes even, they're out telling people how horrible they are for requiring masks in their business. No, you don't do that either. Yeah. Listen, if a business or a church or any institution uh, wants to require masks, they wants to require right, yeah. social distancing mm -hmm. in their, in their private business or in their f church, that's not run by the government. Uh, which we have none of here. You have a little bit of there to some degree. Yeah, it's the not the queen's technically horrible. the head of the, the church of England. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, let them make a good decision and then honor them for making that. That's yeah. what a free society is about. Yeah. Even mm -hmm. if they're too highly restrictive, they're going to pay a price or survive in the marketplace. That's the beauty of freedom. And so I think that, uh, you know, that's the other side of this issue where in this country, people are really nasty at others for wearing a mask mm -hmm. or requiring a mask in their business. It's like, get over it. You know, let them decide. But the government should not be deciding. In mm -hmm. my opinion, both from a Christian perspective and a generally a political perspective, I don't think it's the government's to decide. Great information. You know, mm -hmm. um, uh, in in Calvin's five points of Calvinism, you, you talk about the moral depravity of man. Well, he doesn't use the term utter depravity. You'll notice. It's moral depravity. Mm -hmm. In other words, if we want to approach God, we don't have the opportunity. We are depraved in that sense. Romans 3 lays this out. Uh, Isaiah 64 lays this out. So many parts of Scripture make it very clear our moral incapability to approach God. But it doesn't mean that we are utterly morally mm -hmm. depraved. 
So, uh, I mean, you know, shoot, it, it, Hitler loved Ava Braun and probably treated her well. That's one of the, that is maybe the most morally depraved man in human history mm-hmm. and still probably treated that woman with care yeah. as he's destroying the lives of others. So he should be obviously rebuked, but, but we're not utterly depraved as yep, not people. So therefore, if you give people good information... Yep. They're going to make a decision that may be self-interested in the sense I don't want to die, but they're going to tend to have some degree of thoughtfulness to others in a way, by the way, that Hitler never would. But, but th- this, is, this is something that we that free societies should understand, mm-hmm. that man is not good by nature. He's actually wicked yep. by nature, to be candid. He's going to do the selfish, self-interested mm-hmm. thing, tend to do it. But when you have an organized society – he or she is required of necessity to think of others at some level and some do it better than others. So we need to trust people to make good decisions Mm. if they have good information. Mm. And we didn't have either of those things in, in this outbreak at all. We did have it during the Spanish flu shoot the Hong Kong flu of the late sixties, you know, in the Mm -hmm. America and in Europe, we, we, we didn't shut anything down in either place. People were living normally Woodstock, the famous Woodstock happened during the Hong Kong right. flu in, in upper state New York. So, you know, we can still make decisions on our own and do pretty well with it. Mm-hmm. And we need to trust people to figure it out if we give them good info. Christians mm-hmm. should be at the forefront of this understanding, in my opinion. Yeah, we're, we're just at a time where information is so ubiquitous that people can access, you know, the instant to the minute almost death count and think this is uh it's almost risky yeah. like i understand when people are criticizing donald trump for not being as open about it being as uh, dangerous you know in order to prevent panic but i see a lot of um the virtue of that because i think if you it's, it's just the same as I, I saw people say about if you put like heart attacks related to obesity or if you put up um yeah car crash deaths you know those kind of things people would start to freak out about those as well if they were seeing the numbers minute by minute. So there would be a, a movement to have a, a national speed limit of 30 or something like that, you know. So um, it's this age of information, you know, that's really, it's it, people have such quick access to, to things that, yeah. are, that will worry them and, and without someone almost to take the lead and say, there's no need to panic. Not that, there, not that you may not uh, succumb to this illness, but it's, you know, we'll get through it with positivity and, 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 bring people together and that you know that's i think that's definitely a virtue um it's yeah so sorry go ahead so so as as we get close to shutting this down here josh what do you see um where do you see the church right now and what do you see as the hope for the future as we try to grapple with these issues of religion and politics (laughs) that we all want tend to want to avoid I was talking to um, a political science professor who specializes in the areas of religion and politics, and I asked him a sort of similar question about, you know, what's what position should the church be in in terms of, or what would benefit the church most? How should we approach these issues that are divisive? Um, and his advice, really, or he wouldn't have used the word advice, but what he was saying is he tends to to see churches as being uh, promoters of values and um, of certain belief systems that you know the church really is it's it's not it's not the church's place to tell people what to do but to promote certain values and lobby for those values so rather than being involved specifically in, in endorsing particular political parties or political figures um, he saw the church's place as being 
promoters of values and allowing people then to make that decision for themselves as to who best fits that value system and who they and allowing people to vote um for themselves so i understand his point of view um so i think really in my opinion what needs to happen is more dialogue and less assumptions of like i said in the uk people assumed that everyone hates trump i think and hates brexit and that caused division because people were then feeling like i don't know if this church represents me um and i think every church is probably faced with similar issues on that front and especially when they have a broad demographic um so i think where we need to be is in a place where we can have open discussions but we don't look down on our fellow man for believing different things to us and for for supporting different political objectives political parties than us and really it's it comes down to discipleship and seeing people as your brothers where you, if you feel like someone maybe is supporting something that's harmful then take them aside talk to them learn from each other and and try to grow in that sense but it, it, what i see too much of is um the church being so strongly linked to particular ideologies and i don't know if it'll ever stop but i see in america there may be churches that are um i've seen it quite a lot actually that are super um like they promote for example this idea of the state of israel as being something they should really support and not everyone believes that but that drives some people away in certain regards whereas instead of talking about that you know talk scripture talk values or if you if your church supports donald trump or if your church doesn't if it hates donald trump and says this is something we should not be going near at all not touching with a 10-foot pole then um you need to instead of doing that instead of saying that very clearly and like that talk about the values and that people make their own minds up and if people see donald trump as supporting their views and their values then that's their decision but the church shouldn't be the uh looking down on people for that because that's that's the worst in my mind the worst uh the reason really i started these podcasts was to get rid of that um that sort of uh it's, it's so pervasive where people are are looking down on people who disagree with them instead of um, engaging with them. So that would be my two cents. I think uh, for me, it's it's about engaging, talking to people from all sides and then letting people make their minds up and, and loving them no less for, for disagreeing with you. Yeah, I, I believe that the church, here in the United States, one of the big problems I have <clears throat> is that Jerry Falwell and Dr. Dobson, whom I worked mm-hmm. for, Dr. James Dobson, D. James Kennedy, Charles Colson, Chuck Colson, um, these great leaders who have passed, begin passing along here in the United States were very effective at getting Christians involved in the political endeavor. I think fundamentally that was a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Along the yes. way uh, here in the United States, Christians became sometimes slavishly devoted to one yeah. political party or the other. You, you see this in <clears throat> general evangelical circles, uh, black and white and, and other races in the mm-hmm. church for the Republican party. You actually see this in a lot of the black community that are very conservative. I mean, they're wonderful believers in Christ walking with Jesus, but sometimes slavishly devoted to the Democrat party. I think that's actually going to be an interesting thing to watch uh, on after November 3rd. Mm-hmm the results of how the black community voted related to Biden and Trump. And I think there are going to be some, uh, at least some modest shifts that'll I think so, make yeah. that an interesting discussion. Yep. But, um, but this <clears throat> slavish devotion to party is bad. Now I'm yep. going to continue to work in the Republican party, even though philosophically I'm probably closer to the libertarian party uh, in terms of activities, because that's, that's just where I choose to work. But I have no slavish devotion mm-hmm. to the, that party. And I think that, that that's something we don't want to encourage Christians to do. 
but there are a set of principles. I think, by the way, we didn't get into this and we can talk about it sometime in the future, hopefully, yeah. uh, in First Samuel 8, the rebuke that God gave to Israel for wanting a king, mm. I think lays out something very important that Christians need to study and be aware of because I do not, I believe God to be a limited government um, philosophically limited government for what we do in this world until he comes back and, you know, until yeah. the eschatological mm -hmm. things play out. But, but uh, I think God is limited government. In fact, his biggest rebuke to Israel is they wanted to stop serving him and they wanted to serve a king right. instead. In fact, that's, that's what he told Samuel when Samuel was so upset about it. God said, Hey, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Yeah. And I think Christians need to work, towards a society and government to the extent that they can influence it where we are devoted to him. Yes. Mm -hmm. We're not devoted <laughs> to, to some worldly ideology, but we are devoted to his ideologies, you know, the things that he lays out uh, in scripture. And I think we need to be slavishly devoted to that. That's mm -hmm. something that's very important that God lays out for us. And we need to understand his principles. I think we need to get back to studying theology and not uh, not um, worship or whatever stupid little thing that we devote ourselves to. I want to read this because I I ran the a marriage amendment effort in Colorado mm -hmm. in 2006, and as I was praying through and knowing what I had to do, I went to uh, a, the Lord told me I needed to memorize Psalm four. Now I'm gonna, I'm not going to read it all here. But I just want to read a couple things mm -hmm. here because I think that every Christian, when they think through politics and these cultural issues, needs to understand what God's saying here as a foundation. Right. Said, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. I'm reading the English Standard Version. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long will you honor Will my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? By the way, this is the Christian speaking into culture, mm -hmm. FYI. Mm -hmm. doesn't always look nice and pretty. But he says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And I'm going to skip ahead to this part. There are many who say, who will show us any good? That, that is a question Christians are asking mm -hmm. in society. And to be candid, they ought to know the answer to that. God is showing yep. us good every single day. We need to live it out in our lives, example it to others. Mm. We need to assert it in culture and even in politics, in my opinion. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me to dwell mm. in the safety. I really think Christians, first of all, when they think about these matters, should read Psalm 4. Consider the implications that we will go into a society that wants to defame us, mm -hmm. that we need to not lose heart when it seems that the, that the worldly culture is overwhelming us in any way. Mm -hmm. And we need to go into the culture not to become part of it. And this is some of my concern with the Christian church on both sides of the pond, to be candid, is that we feel like we got to be part of culture right. where, where we don't hate the homosexual but then are we also going to give up that God considers homosexuality sin? Mm -hmm. We don't hate the person. We love the person. Yep. We honor them. We build relationships with them even. Yep, but exactly. we don't 
undertake honoring the sin. There, we need to get serious about what our role is in culture. And our role is to be faithful and truthful mm. to who God is and what the requirements to us are. And then we need to example that into culture as best possible. And then honest, be quite honest when we fail even. Mm-hmm. And yet, it, it, but, this is, but we don't compromise the principles and the things that matter to yeah. him. That's a challenge because yeah. if we don't honor him, we're going to be accused of being mean and nasty, but yet we shouldn't purposefully be that way mm-hmm. either. It's a real challenge, but we've got to think about this seriously. Yeah. And it's my hope, and this is what I've tried to do in politics all my life, and I hope to continue to do as he gives me grace to do it. But th- we just need to think differently. It's time to change. And, and by the way, in this country, and I pray also in Europe, mm-hmm. we need in this country a third great awakening. We had two great awakenings that radically transformed our culture and our way of thinking. It didn't mean everyone got saved yeah. and became a Christian, but we need this cultural reset. I think Europe needs it too. Europe has the foundations of Christian culture in it as well too. The mm-hmm. Judeo-Christian ethic still is fundamentally at yeah. the core, hopefully yeah. won't be lost forever. And we need to reassert that mm-hmm. and go back to it. Amen. Yeah, thanks so much, Jim, for um, for taking the time to talk today. I, I mean, I appreciate your offer, and uh, it's it's a blessing for me to be able to um, to, to be on your show as well as you being on mine. So, uh, thanks Absolutely. so much for for reaching out, and I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for your willingness to have me on too. And uh, we'll, we'll do. We should do this from time we to time, should, yeah, especially we, as some of these big issues come up because I yeah. think we've got a lot to talk about. Yeah. And I think Christians really are hungry to know and especially and understand what's going in on in the wake of the election. You know, who knows what's going to happen? But yeah, um, we can debrief that in a future time and some of the issues that we see from that. But yeah, I've really enjoyed Absolutely. it. And uh, yeah, thanks so much um, again for that. Do you want to tell my listeners sort of where they can find your your sites online and are you on social media, those kind of things? Yeah, so um, if you go, well, first of all, my website is politics isn't nice.com that's the website for the against nice podcast on twitter against nice on facebook facebook.com forward slash against nice um the so that those are the main areas that i am on and and tell people how to get to your place for folks listening yeah. to my podcast so our website um pretty much everything is on the website at um www dot um I think I said three W's there. It almost sounded like I said more. www.thetwothings.org, yeah, <laughs> uh, I believe. So go on there and all our links are there. And we're on Instagram at, at the Two Things Network. And we're on Twitter and Facebook and all those other places. So if you go to the website, it'll all be there and you can get all of our links. And I think the podcast is available on Spotify as well, if anyone uses that. But um, YouTube yeah. is our main site. So you can search the two things you shouldn't talk about on YouTube. But like I said, the link will be on our website and you can uh, find it all on there and by the way we're on youtube as well you, you've got uh, some very interesting content people will agree or disagree with some yeah. of it <laughs> but they're going to find it a great place to really grapple yeah. with uh it's, politics and religion it's it's <laughs> i mean i've had people with from all different uh, perspectives you know from from really strong conservatives and even the conversation today is some conservative topics uh libertarians you know people who don't necessarily engage with politics at all you know people who are um you know like i said researchers and pastors all everything so um i encourage everyone to, to look into some of them but um even the people that you may disagree with you'll you'll learn something i think so um, yeah. i encourage everyone to 
pick almost per- the person that they disagree with the most or think they might and, and see what, what comes out of it. But I'm really looking for more actually um, Christian kind of liberals and, and even people who may describe themselves as Christian socialists to come on and talk a little bit about why they got to where they are. So if anyone listening is, is in that boat, then give me a shout. But I think that would be an interesting conversation because I want to challenge some of the things. You know, I'm naturally more conservative. I want to hear the opposing viewpoint, and and I think it's healthy to do that. But doesn't mean you'll you'll come out agreeing with them. But it's all about the the conversation and 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 learning and letting God speak to to both sides of the argument. Totally agree that that's a healthy thing to do, and uh, we should we should definitely be involved with it. And and by the way, I want to encourage your listeners to, as you did click on the podcasts uh, link at the top of the page yes, yeah. and go to my original podcast where I talk about this against mm. nice theory that I have. I also have a small article It's a great uh, lesson. that I does can, the same thing. I can confirm that. Anyone from my side, definitely go to that page and listen because um, it, it, you've touched on some of the, the things in this episode, but you go into obviously more detail on, on this philosophy. So I encourage everyone to, to go listen to that and, and support. We'll support each other's pages. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Josh, it, I'm glad to have you on my podcast. I'm honored to be on yours yep, as well. Absolutely. It's, it's uh, my pleasure. And thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Um, you can join us next week on the two things you shouldn't talk about podcast. Um, but yeah, thanks, Jim, for joining us. Uh, and um, for everyone listening, make sure you click like and subscribe if you enjoy, just so you can get the latest content when it comes out. But um, until next time, thanks so much for listening. Um.